I love this church. It's, it's a great place uh, to be. It's full of men and women that take seriously their walk with the Lord and their love for their families. I see many generations represented here today. Mothers, fathers, grandparents, and even great-grandparents worshiping and serving together week after week as a household of faith, seeking to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To all the dads out there, happy Father's Day. Uh, On on days like today, my wife and I like to consider our family vision and and reflect on what our children mean to us and what they would represent to us to the and what they represent us to the world. You see, our vision for our families will only be as good as our vision of God. And what I see when I look at our four children is legacy and generational faithfulness. As we observe throughout the scripture the high honor of raising our children unto the Lord, we see how God raises up future generations for his name's sake. Today we look at the fatherhood of God and how he relates to us. Now if you would grab your Bibles and open them to Romans 8, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 17 today. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, uh, just let us know and we'll be happy to grab one for you. I know there's a few on that uh, desk over there in the back that is labeled prayer. So before we read the text, I want us to consider the words of A.W. Tozer, uh, where he wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, Today we're going to consider God and who he is as we study the text. Let's begin by reading Romans 8, 14 through 17. All who are led by the Spirit of God, who are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we need you this morning as we do in every moment of every day, in the moving of the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to truth that you reveal in Scripture, and to move us to action and service for your name's sake. Lord, I pray and ask you to use this broken vessel to proclaim your goodness that is revealed in Scripture and provide clarity of thought and speech. Open the ears of the listener to receive your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit will stir hearts this morning to repentance of sin, to joy and hope for those listening who do not know you to salvation through through faith in Christ and his redemption. Wake those who are slumber in our midst that they may rise to a new life in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the first and main point uh, I want to draw from the text is starting in verse 14. It says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons, and likewise daughters of God. We're going to spend the majority of our time discussing the theme that it's the Christian men and women 
boys and girls who are the ones considered children of God. The text helps us to discern who that is. It's the one who is led by the Spirit of God. The question is, what does that mean? If, if not the Spirit of God, the Spirit of what? It says that, it says right there in verse 15, I'm sorry, the Spirit of slavery. Before we focus any more on verses 14 through 17, um, let's take a step back uh, for some context. Earlier in the book of Romans, chapter 6, where, where the text talks about being baptized in Christ, Verse 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, if you scroll down a little bit to verse 15, it says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Another way of thinking about it is this. It's um, found in John 8. Uh, Jesus answered them saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is all of us. Every one of us have walked outside of God's mercy and are all guilty. We were once slaves, sons and daughters of disobedience. As, as Ephesians 2 states, you were dead in your trespasses and sins which... I'm sorry... And sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Outside of Christ, my friends, we are all slaves. Slaves to sin. All of us. One, one thing we know is that where there is slavery, there is a master. But God does not operate as a master. He is the creator, and he is a father. His nature is fatherly. Yes, he is Lord, but his nature is fatherly. But contrary to popular belief, not everyone is God's child. John chapter 1 is an account of God as creator and and an instruction to Jesus. I'm sorry, introduction to Jesus and uh, in verses 12 and 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, was it, children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of whom? God. You see, God has always been our creator, but not always our father. He created you a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve. And when you came kicking and screaming into this world, you did so with shackles of slavery. As we grow, we kick against the goad, angry at God, and convinced that we are free and that our way is better than God's way. 
I'll share you this story. It's a, I read this article years ago. It's about an elephant, so kids, you might like that. Um, this elephant trainer was being interviewed, and, and he shared that as a part of the experience to the patrons, uh, that they get, get to view this six to seven ton elephant. That's around 14,000 pounds up close and personal without even a fence as a barrier. So young kids could theoretically just walk right up into our area, or likewise the elephant could just take off. He explained, though, that when the elephant is just a baby, they put a stake in the ground, they put a shackle on her ankle, and a chain connecting the two. He explained in the interview that they keep that shackle and that chain on the elephant its entire life, and when it's well-trained and fully grown, they simply remove the chain. The chain is not there. The elephant could run. It could escape. But what they have found over time is that as long as the stake is in the ground and the shackle is on the ankle, that the elephant will only wander as far as the chain, which once bound her, would let her go. You see, we're often like that elephant. In Christ, our chains have been broken. We've been released from our bondage, but we only walk often so far from the comfort of our sin before the fear of what might happen if we actually left it all behind and walked in the freedom that we have in Christ. Let me try explaining. Before we are saved, our whole lives are marked by sin. We are slaves to our sin. We're not free. We're bound. We begin to develop unhealthy rhythms in life. We build up defenses. Some find comfort in lying, some in stealing, or building up of one's own self. Some build idols, whether it be money or talent or status. Some turn to addiction, addiction to our phones, pictures on the internet, drugs, alcohols, toys, hobbies. The idols are endless. And we run to these things to scratch some itch or to soothe some pain. Even as Christians, we tend to look at that stake in the ground and we don't want to wander too far. We often act like slaves instead of living in the freedom that Jesus brings. Now this is the bad news, folks. It's not a good thing, but it does get better because there is good news. Are you a son or a slave, a daughter of disobedience, or a child of God? Do you know God as Father? Do you know Him at all? And how do you relate to Him? As we see in the text today, it is our position goes from being slaves with a master to children with a father. And we need to know the difference. I heard one man describe it like this, God is not master, He is your father. Here's the contrast. A master uses you, a father blesses you. A master motivates you by fear, a father motivates you by love. A master beats you down, and a father builds you up. A master has no grace for you and no inheritance. A father has full grace for you and a full inheritance. You see, the word became flesh. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He, he healed he taught, he suffered, and he died. He paid that price that we owe. 
you and me, for our sin. In our place he stood, condemned, rejected by the Father, stricken, smitten, and alone. For the first time since infinity passed, he was not in perfect communion with the Father. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. Christ is the Father's only begotten Son. And when we put our faith and our hope in Jesus, something incredible happens. We are adopted as his children. As sons and daughters, let's look quick at chapter 8, verse 14 again. Um, Led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of what? Slavery. To, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you see? Do you see? Our chains are broken. We are set free. We are no longer to live as slaves with a master, but children with a father. We don't have to keep going back to the things that enslaved us. We, we have a loving Father that protects us, cares for us, provides all of our needs, namely Him, our Comforter. Sometimes one puts their trust in God, and then they feel like an imposter, like they're an illegitimate child or something. I was recently speaking with a friend who had adopted, and he shared how various doctors and social workers and books all told him that children who are adopted often struggle with feelings of rejection, like they were in some way not wanted. I'm sure that's true. Let me tell you this. When you become a son or daughter, the means by which you get there does not matter. Be it by birth or adoption, once you're in the family, you're in. I'm sure those feelings of inadequacy seem real, but the truth remains that when a family picks you up out of whatever situation that you were in at the time and brings you into their home and calls you son or calls you daughter, it's a reflection of God's love for his children. You're not looked upon as inadequate. Rather, you're favored. No matter your failures, no matter your faults. When you are adopted by God, it is because you are wanted, loved, accepted, chosen to be a son or daughter. There's never been rejection. No matter what it may seem, only a sovereign plan to bring you into God's family. Do you see what it means to be adopted by God? We were orphans. Orphans need adoption. Okay? Slaves to sin. We were bought with a price and adopted as sons and daughters. When the Father adopts you and I, He chooses for us to belong to His family. An orphan does not choose their parents. It doesn't go that way, it only goes the other way. The orphan is completely helpless. This was you and this was me. And when, we, when he plucks you out of the muck and the mire, the sin that enslaves us, he does not do so because you are a good slave. He does this because he chose you before the foundations of the earth. Not because you've done anything good or bad, 
but because of his great love and mercy. When he created you, his affections were for you. Let me say it again like this. When Christ was nailed to that tree, his blood was spilt, and he became a substitution for you. Paying your way into the family to share in his inheritance. To have access to his father as your father, so that you can cry out, Abba, Father. And know that you are heard and loved by the creator of the heavens, the creator of the earth. The one true God who holds all things together and who made you in his image to bear his identity. Because when you are in Christ and the Father looks upon you, he does not see your sins and failures. He sees sons and daughters washed clean and made pure. Not by you trying harder or doing better, but because he sees you, he foreknew you, and he knew you could not try hard enough. Or do good enough. So he sent his son to make things right, to take your place, so that you may have a place at the family table. And that, my friend, that's the good news. When God adopts his children, when he saves you, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And God begins to do a work in you and in me, conforming us to his son Jesus. Again, let's look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Calling God Abba would have been a really big deal in the first century. In the Old Testament, Scripture refers to God as Father around 15 times. And almost always as a corporate head, a title, Keep in mind, this is a patriarchal society. But here he's referred to as Abba, meaning a personal, relational dad. In the New Testament, Scripture refers to God as Father 65 times in the first three Gospels alone, and over 100 times in the Gospel of John alone, and countless times in the rest of the New Testament. Well, maybe not countless, but I didn't count them. When discussing this uh, with Hans, uh, he uh, drew to my attention to also consider that the Pharisee got angry with Jesus for calling God his father. They wanted to kill him for it. Okay? So what we begin to see here is an overall shift in how the followers of Jesus related to the father. And perhaps, perhaps it was Jesus who had the biggest role in this reality when he taught his disciples to pray. As we studied some months ago when Hans preached on the Lord's Prayer, Jesus begins that prayer with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, glory to your name, honor to your name. He goes on, Your kingdom come, your will be done. You'll notice that Jesus includes the disciple as as he's calling on the Father, Our Father. Not just my father, but our father. He sets the precedent and invites us into calling him dad. Just like marriage is in Ephesians 5, as a picture of Christ in the church, us dads in the room represent the fatherhood of God to our children. And this is important, folks. 
Let's think about that for a second. To quote my, my wife as we were discussing this, she said, Fathers are the first lens through which we view God. For better or for worse, you are creating some type of legacy and affecting how your children understand and relate to God. And for some of us, that, doesn't make, that makes it very difficult to, for us to see God as Father. I used to be one of those guys. My dad split when I was about 10 years old, fourth or fifth grade, somewhere in there. He, he didn't go far, just a neighborhood over from me, but, but I rarely saw him. He was a stranger, really. Even when he was around, he really wasn't. My mom raised my sisters and I, my sister and I alone, worked extra jobs and, to pay the bills, took us to ball practices, was there to pick us up when, peace, when, uh, when things got hard. And when I got into fights at school, my grades began to drop. She taught me right from wrong, yes. But most importantly, who God was and how we were saved through the sacrifice of Jesus. My mother is here this morning, still supporting me. And on Father's Day every year, I call her to say thank you for being both a mom and a dad. I couldn't tell you a single thing my dad taught me. I should have been a statistic. I grew up angry and I hated myself. I I didn't understand what was wrong with me. How a father couldn't love his son. I would frequently argue with my mom and others because this anger was built up in me. But, But she was a woman of prayer and of faith. It wasn't until I came to understand God as Father did that that pain just start to melt away. Did I feel the love of the Father accepted? had a roommate at the time that that started a recovery program at the church we attended. I started attending this recovery program and and began to work through some of the hurts, habits, and hang-ups that I had that I was holding on to. You see, before I had low self-esteem, but now... My confidence is in Christ. Let's take a minute to look at two different legacies when it comes to fatherhood. When we look at the legacy of Jonathan Edwards, one of America's greatest preachers, who was a key figure in the Great Awakening, when we look at his faithfulness of raising his children and passing on vision, we see that out of nearly 1,400 descendants, Three became senators, three governors, three mayors, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 military officers, 100 preachers and missionaries, 60 prominent authors, and 80 other public officials, including one vice president of the United States of America. On the other hand, there was a a man named Max Jukes, He lived in New York about the same period as Edwards. Uh, He was largely an unknown convict whose legacy came into people's attention when the family trees of 42 different men in the New York prison system were traced back to him. They started studying him, and Juke's descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 310 were impoverished, and 440 who were physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. Of the 1,200 descendants that were studied, 300 of them died prematurely. How we raise our children matters. How we love them, 
train them, direct them to God. And as I said at the start of the sermon, when I look at our children, I look at generations and legacy. For those of us who are parents, we are all legacy makers. The example we set for them is of vast importance. For some of us, we realize how far we fall short in the dad department or the mom department. How could we possibly live up to God's example and his standard? Let's be honest. This is all of us, and we can't. Because the Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all sin, and we all have failures. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And when God adopts his children, when he saves you, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And, he be- and, and God begins to do a work in you and in me, conforming us to his son, Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians saying that uh, when we continue to walk in unrepentant sin and we give ourselves over to it, quote, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This means that when we are marked by Christ, and dwelled with the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father, that there are often outward signs that God has done a great work in you and how we relate to those around us begin to change. We begin to change as God changes us through his Holy Spirit. So on this Father's Day, we get to, do, we get to admit where we have failed, Right? We all get to admit where we failed. How we have sinned against our own families. As fathers and husbands, wives, mothers, sons or daughters. Where we have yelled at each other or been lazy or dismissive or we haven't provided. Where we have sought our own desires. Not to serve the ones we love. This is the part of what it means to suffer, in verse 17, working out our own salvation, being forged in his image under heat and the hammer. Likewise, in Romans 5, it says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. We get to respond to God, trusting that he is sufficient. While we do see a legacy built in through good parents and bad, God's mercy and grace towards us is always near, and we get to call upon him for help. We get to ask for forgiveness, first to God and then to those whom we love and those whom we've hurt. It's a simple task, really, to ask for forgiveness, but it's not easy. Don't move on from this, though. Don't simply try to do better next time. Repent. Repent today. 
not tomorrow, for tomorrow never comes. Tomorrow is a black hole in which good intentions go to die, where the procrastinator files away promises to do better, to complete a task, to make amends, or to try again. For this person, tomorrow never comes. There is only today. As a parent, we are raising up future generations for his namesake and for his glory so that we can share in Christ's inheritance. That means you and I will inherit a restored, perfect relationship with God himself. You get God. And everything that Jesus has access to, which is everything. Romans 5 says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Say that again. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So follow in the Father's example and in Christ, His Son, so that on that last day you will see Him face to face and He shall say, well done, good and faithful service.